Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi, y'all. This is Dr. Susan. Welcome to Occupy Health. Here we want people to learn about how to optimize our health, how to build our immunity so we can be more proactive in our health. Recently, I've had a lot of people who are discussing COVID. There are a lot of questions about COVID. I've had many speakers on COVID, speakers on the vaccines. So what's really going on? Uh, recently, we had somebody from the frontline doctors. Last week, we had a Peter McCullough who is speaking outwardly he's with his expertise raising questions about what we can do about COVID and the best approach so today we have another expert we have Paul Elias Alexander now he holds a master's in clinical epidemiology and community health from the University of Toronto's he has a master's in evidence-based medicine and clinical epidemiology from Oxford and a doctorate in evidence-based medicine clinical epidemiology and research methods from McMaster's Hamilton's uh, grad, uh, at York University, Toronto. He also has some biological warfare, bioterrorism experience on weaponization and delivery of pathogens as a bioweapon. He has a certificate on that uh, from John Hopkins in 2001. Um, he has been working as an assistant professor at McMaster's University, but most interesting, he's worked for WHO-PAHO as a COVID pandemic consultant at the start of this pandemic in January 2020. So he certainly has a lot that he could share with us. Then he was a senior COVID advisor from May 2020 onwards for the Trump administration. So he's got a lot of behind the scenes um, experience. So uh, Dr. Alexander, welcome. Oh, so please tell us uh, your views on COVID and what you think might be going on. Hi, thank you very much for that that introduction, and um, it's a privilege to be on your show. Uh, <clears throat> well, I mean, uh, the reality about it is that um, different parties have different views on how this should have been dealt with, and um, I come from the school of thought that from day one, um, the failure of most governments still today, including United States, Canada, etc., Britain, is the failure to properly, strongly protect the high-risk people, which are the elderly. And um, uh, these people were not protected where staff were allowed to enter the um, nursing homes, old-age homes, and infect uh, the elderly and uh, cause a vast amount of the deaths, which is catastrophic and a failure. Um, with with um, strategies such as improved hand washing, isolation only of um, symptomatic ill persons, uh, uh, persons who had a strong clinical suspicion, etc. Um, my philosophy or the philosophy that uh, the, the folks that I work with is such that um, the lockdowns, the school closures, the uh, mass mandates, etc. They were, look. When you look at the science today, they've all failed. The evidence of these uh, societal control strategies 
showed that they didn't work. They were highly ineffective, and in fact, they caused tremendous catastrophic harm on our populations. So our argument always was just protect the elderly properly, engage in issues around proper hand hygiene, etc., test um, uh, only symptomatic people, isolate only symptomatic people, no testing of asymptomatic people across the population, no isolation of asymptomatic people because these steps are very harmful. And I think the most important component there was the use of uh, early outpatient treatment in the high-risk population because we were finding that when you intervened with this pathogen very early in the disease course, that you could stop the viral replication in the first few days after testing positive with early symptoms in high-risk persons, which tend to be the elderly persons confined to nursing homes or um, morbidly obese individuals, etc., persons with risk. And uh, once you intervened early with the antivirals, um, we were able to see that you can cut hospitalization and death by about 85%. So you would prevent persons from going to hospital where the risk of death escalates dramatically, and you can treat them in their homes or nursing homes, etc., and um, it would be a much more favorable outcome. And whilst you do that, you know, you allow the rest of society to live largely unfettered, you know, no major uh, interruption. You let the low-risk persons, and this is the key, the high-risk persons elderly, et cetera, must be properly secured first. If we can do that, then you allow the low-risk persons in the society to live largely normal lives and um, taking reasonable, sensible precautions. And early on, we told, we said, no, no, these lockdowns, I mean, for the first two to three weeks, we understood that so that we could get a, a glimpse and an understanding of the pandemic and the pathogen. But after three weeks, we quickly knew what we were dealing with, and we knew how to treat this and how to manage. So the lockdowns had to end after, at, mo at most, one month, end of April of last year. But they kept them going for over a year. They kept the school closures going that harmed, harmed Americans. I mean, not just in America, in Britain, France, Canada, across the world, we were seeing that, that business owners... Because of these, the business closures, because of the, the shelter in place, etc., social distancing and all of that, and the lockdowns, they were harming themselves. They were committing suicide. We were seeing children across America self-harming and committing suicide. I mean, we did. Um, there was a survey done in in uh, in uh, last year, and we found that in June of 2020, summer, um, we looked at all of the university students in America, age 18 to 24. And we saw that um, about 30% of them reported that they seriously considered suicide in the last month. And that was very shocking because that's the youngest, most healthiest people in America. And it was not due to the virus. It was due to the lockdowns and the impingement on liberties and the, and the and uh, just the isolation and, and everything that the governments in the different states, etc., were doing. So... That's why the president, et cetera, and uh, persons uh, that I've been involved with and myself, we were pushing to open the society and open schools because the harms 
were devastating and uh, way more than the pathogen itself. And um, so that's where we are today. I'm a, I'm a member of the Early Outpatient Treatment Research Group, and we are pushing the use of, um, as I said, these antiviral therapeutics very early on in the disease course because we see that it saves lives and it prevents disease progression. And uh, put it this way, 600,000 Americans have died, and we are extrapolating that we may have been able to save 400,000 to 500,000 Americans had the medical profession been open to, and doctors were brave enough to, to, um, to treat their patients more aggressively with early outpatient treatment, you know, maintaining their dignity, um, having mercy on these people because quite often when they end up in the hospital, they're very isolated. They're sealed off from their family, no visits. They even sealed off from the, uh, from the attending doctors and nurses, etc. They're by themselves in a, in a room cold, um, and it's a very frightening experience. They're scared, and they often dwindle down and, and die, very alone and isolated, and it's a, it's a crushing, crushing um, end result. And um, we, it doesn't have to be like this, and uh, early treatment works. And we are trying right now. We just published a paper, me, Dr. McCullough, Dr. Reish, on the effect of, effectiveness of early treatment in, uh, in nursing homes. Well, this is what you said is way overwhelming. I mean, first of all, as I understand in history, we only protected and locked it up and quarantined the vulnerable, not the healthy. So you're saying that wasn't important. But more important, what I heard you say is that doctors weren't using treatments that could have helped these people, which means, as I thought I heard you say, that maybe we could have saved four hundred to 500,000 lives because early treatment wasn't being done. Well, we've had people on the show that tried early treatment, and they were stopped by the government. Uh, they were, you know, threatened by the Department of Justice. They were censored. Information on vitamin C was censored by the CEO of YouTube. I mean, what is going on? I mean, you're saying early treatment works, and there seems to be some evidence for hydroxyquinine and ivermectin, and this wasn't happening. What happened? Well, I think one of the main issues is um, we, we coined this term therapeutic nihilism, which really means that, you know, I think doctors were afraid in the beginning because they didn't understand the disease also. And um, you have uh, what was going on, too, was a lot of these research academic institutions, academic centers were conducting some research that um, were, were basically designed to fail. So... They were conducting research studies that they used the drug, the wrong doses at the wrong time period. For example, uh, it's as antivirals, uh, and this virus has three distinct phases, the initial viral replication phase for about two weeks, followed by the cytokine um, inflammatory phase where the immune system is uh, triggered and goes berserk and attacks you, followed by um, the antithrombotic blood clotting phase. And these three phases, while distinct across a one-month period from infection, they have overlap also. So so we we were saying, you know, you, you begin with the with the antivirals, but you can't begin antivirals after twenty days a person has been positive and has been has been getting worse every day because viral replication is over. And at that point, this is a very sick person. They're in a, the immune system now is attacking the person, and uh, they need 
corticosteroids at that point. So what was happening was that the drugs were being used erroneously and the studies were being designed to fail, to, 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 to not show effective effectiveness of the drugs. They were using extra young persons. I mean, if you have 30-year-old people in a study, you will have no primary outcomes, no instances of death. These will be low-risk people. So you will not be able to show any of the effect of the drugs in that situation. So they were using the wrong groups, um, wrong dosing, etc. And you also had the regulatory agencies in the United States as an example. They were adverse, adverse to um, pivoting towards the early treatment because they had this dictum that um, they would only look at, uh, and they would be on the television and saying it, that unless you bring randomized controlled trials that... Um, that proved the effectiveness of the medication. Um, the other sorts of study designs were not optimal. But that was wrong because, because in America, there's the 21st Century Cures Act that was signed in 2016. It's an actual law that mandates that the FDA look at all evidence besides randomized controlled trials. In fact, it was set up because the FDA principally looked at randomized controlled trials and did not look at anecdotal evidence or real-world evidence evidence from clinicians in their own practices. So this severely hampered the regulatory approval process. So Congress passed an act, a law, in 2016, and the FDA still does not even function under legal requirements in the United States. And they did that here because we have many observational, non-randomized studies, etc., that support really outpatient treatment, but they are still locked in this mindset. and. Um, I think the reality about it in twenty, in uh, when this pandemic started, where it is headed in 20, early twenty twenty, you know, with President Trump, with the election, and being a political year, everything was just blown sky high and just went nuts. And um, so nobody could have really reined in the FDA or have a serious conversation at a very serious level, where you know. Um, the, 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 the right people would have meetings and have discussions to say, well, look, you can't just dismiss these studies. You can't just dismiss this evidence and say hydroxychloroquine doesn't work or ivermectin doesn't work, etc. And we're going to wait until people mount the right randomized controlled trials where up to today, the proper randomized controlled trials have still not been done, looking at multiple drug treatments, etc. So that probably will never even happen. So um, why? The question was simple. We asked, if somebody, if a high-risk person, let's say my grandmother, with a couple of underlying medical conditions is in our home, or let's say she was in a nursing home, and she tested positive, we already discussed that the staff were the ones bringing infection into the homes. That's a separate, very grave discussion. But let's just say she tested positive. Normally, the procedure would be that if you took my grandmother to the, her clinic, her doctor, the doctor would check out and say, well, your symptoms are not that bad yet. You may have some brain difficulties down the line. How about you go home, you know? Isolate yourself for the 14 days, of course. Um, drink your soup and all of that, you know, be warm and uh, take a look at, gran at your grandmother and... Um, Give us back a call if things worsen and she, and she can't breathe or she gets bad in, into a bad situation. And that's how people would, were treated and are treated. You take them from the nursing home to the hospital, the emergency room would say the same and you send them back. 
So this person is high risk. They're not gravely ill yet. They're at the very beginning of the COVID sequelae, but they're on a train that because of age, because of the comorbid conditions, so because of their risk, because they, COVID is very amenable to risk stratification, and your baseline risk dictates your mortality. So these people are at high risk of death. So why would you send them home so that they can sit there and worsen in place? They can just get sicker and sicker and sicker. You're giving them no treatment. Then by around 10 to 12 days, 13, 14 days, right around there, it's, it's a standard. It's very stable. They get severely worse and they can't breathe. Then you're rushing them to the emergency. By that point, that person is very sick. Treatment becomes much more complicated and, and, and difficult to organize. You have to get them now into the ICU. You have to probably intubate, provide oxygen, all of that, and start more aggressive therapeutics. But that person is already along the line towards severe illness and potential death. Our argument was simple. You have cheap, available, already regulatory approved, effective drugs that work for multiple conditions. They are antivirals also and can work as an antiviral in this case. Why not apply them to the COVID positive high risk person in their home or in a nursing home and dramatically increase their chance of survival? Why let them go home and begin to die? Because that's what happens. And that's the problem. <clears throat> the government and the medical establishment tied the hands of doctors and made them so afraid of prescribing and of treating their patients. So it was hands off. And um, the, the government and the necessary parties in different states began to go after doctors' licenses and threaten them with being fired from the universities they were attached to, etc. if you advocated for these early treatments. And it's so bizarre and so insane because you are talking about drugs that work and you are talking about doctors across the world saying, but wait, I've been using this for these COVID very severe cases and they've lived. So why why can't we use it? But But they couldn't and they still can't because they would be severely sanctioned and punished, lose their license, have to go in front of the licensing board and, and, and probably end up, their career is over. So everybody went into silence and nobody would touch. And um, so, so there are these doctors like Dr. McCullough, Dr. Havirish, Dr. Faree, Dr. Zelenko, Dr. Pierre Corey, who decided that enough of this and they were going to push the early treatment and beg doctors to step back and think of your patient and try and be brave, trust the clinical judgment. And where I've come into this is, you know, as I explained, I shared with you before, <clears throat> when the pandemic started in uh, end of January, beginning of February, um, I, I was already doing some consultation with WHO, Geneva, and PAHO, Washington, D.C. office. I was still in Toronto, but I was consulting for them on some evidence-based issues. We were designing a program for low- and middle-income countries. And um, for me to teach them epidemiology and statistics, et cetera, and evidence and all of that. But then when the pandemic started in January, February, WHO, PAHO asked me, um, we have... This is rearing its head now, and we have no team in place. And I have particular 
evidence-based medicine skills out of Canada. It's really a niche area and very highly specialized area, but it's actually the area that's in demand in situations like this so that you could properly understand the science and bring all the evidence together to inform policy and, and decisions at a very high level. And um, so they asked me if I can do the work quickly with them and be their consultant. So initially, WHO and PAHO response to COVID was actually me. I was working in Toronto to my home office, and I was feeding into the relevant people in WHO and PAHO, you know, looking at all of the evidence that was coming out of China, across the world, and, and positioning COVID and explaining it. What are, the, what are the main issues at the beginning and the type of therapeutics that were available? And then I got a call about maybe in uh, mid-April um, from D.C. I'm not sure of the exact date, uh, from the White House area, asking me if I would be interested to come to Washington and join the um, behind-the-scenes, the task force, etc., to broaden the president's table and to um, help inform him and the team from a science evidence-based point of view. And, um, well, of course, who, 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 if it was Obama, I would have said yes. If it was even Biden today, I would, I would serve. Who would say no to a president? And I particularly appreciated Trump because <clears throat> I had just got my legal residency for America, my family. I was trying to think about do I... Do I go to America to live? I was living in Toronto, had family and all of that. But then I said, you know, let me give it a shot. Present, they've asked me to serve. And, um, you know, it's a very important situation. It's a crisis. If I could play some role. And um, so I went, and um, my role was basically within the assistant secretary's office. And, um, you know, this is about... Uh, uh, this is about early treatment and the situation, the dramatic situation, ca catastrophic situation potentially with these vaccines and kids. So it's not really about me, but I mean it's a very important point. The, the long and short of it is somebody like me made a decision to serve and uh, from, from getting there immediately, <clears throat> I was told in D.C. And D.C. was like a ghost town that um, because you're working for Trump, um, that's a no-no. And the decision by the bureaucracy came to me direct was that we will destroy you and we will we will make sure that you don't fit in and that you give up and you go back to wherever you came from. Plus, I was from the islands, and I'll be blunt, you know, a person of color, my accent and all of that. I, they weren't too receptive to this high-level, highly skilled and qualified scientist. Not like them. And I'll be blunt. I was told this in my face. So... Here I am working with the top levels of CDC and NIH and, 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 and a lot of things being thrown at me, you know, highly discriminatory too. And um, then I was told, we're not going to finalize your paperwork so that you will just quit. So I was there in D.C. in HHS working for the White House tangentially, but with no status, no paperwork. And then they, just, they said, this guy looks like he's not going to give up because I wasn't giving up. They decided not to pay me. So I, I was actually in D.C. not being paid. And people didn't know this. For me to remain and walk around all of the buildings of, even enter the White House when I did, I needed some badging and I needed high-level security. But I was not getting paid, etc. And the system doesn't work like that if you're not getting paid. So they need to have you 
as like an internal volunteer. So I told him, well, put me down as a volunteer. Although I was attending all of the meetings and at a very high level, I was like a volunteer, an unpaid person just sitting around there giving my scientific views. So it was a very fascinating thing that I was going through. The public never knew. And then the media, they decided that, well, look, we're not approving his paperwork as a formal hire for the government. We're not paying him. And this guy, he wouldn't give up. You know, well, I wasn't going to because I got asked by president and they to serve. I'm serving America. I'm trying to help a pandemic. And um, and uh, they said, well, okay, well, we're going to go. We'll take one more step. We're going to start smearing him in the in the media and his unit and everybody he works with. And we'll leak his emails and take lines of words from it. And we will come up. We'll get the media to write a story around it and, and try to make him look like a nut. So that's what they were doing. So that's what I had to deal with too by around September. And it was not easy because I had people following me out of the office at HHS, calling my home condo that we were staying at. You know, it, it became very unsafe. They, they had to move me around to Maryland, then back to D.C., then to Virginia, just for safety and security because people with their politics are so outraged and so dug in that um, it's very uh, it's threatening. And um, so, you know, I had to make a decision, you know, would I continue? Uh, so by the end of, uh, mid-end of September, I decided I, I, I couldn't go with this much more. And um, so I, 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 I departed. And, uh, well, the election was coming. And then from there, immediately, I pivoted to Dr. McCullough and Lee. And I joined the C-19, early outpatient treatment, etc. Now I'm very involved because even though I worked there and, in a way, in Operation Warp Speed and all of that. I'll be blunt. Um, I supported Trump. I still do. I think he was the best thing for America, and I don't want to get into it. As I said, I would serve Biden. I would serve any president. I would serve any administration. I would do anything to help people and to help the nation. This is not about my politics or what I believe. It's about the science. And right now, I'm against the vaccines in a way, particularly against vaccinations for children. I see children have no risk, no risk of, um, of, of, of readily acquiring it or spreading it or getting severely ill. So we have a vaccine that has given us adverse events and some deaths being reported in CDC's own adverse reporting database. So the question becomes, why would a parent listen to Fauci and whomever tell them, vaccinate your child, when they have not prosecuted the case as to why your child should receive a vaccine that is still experimental and investigational, where they have not done the safety testing required for the requisite amount of time. So you're going to put something in your child that you do not know how it operates. The purpose of an experiment is to exclude harm. Safety is the issue. It's not just how effective it is. We have to be able to exclude harm, particularly appreciable harm. And they've not done any of that here. So the question is why? And the people I'm working with, we are looking at the data. We're looking at the reports of um, outcomes. Like right now, we have all of these few hundred cases in America of teens between 12 to 15 who've just gotten a vaccine and they have myocarditis and pericarditis. These people are going to have serious problems long term in their life. We found out that the spike itself, messenger RNA code, that 
will eventually build that spike, that protein in you to drive the immune response, that it itself, just the spike, is a potentially toxic pathogenic agent. So we are injecting into people something that is potentially deadly to them. And people are not being ethically consented. You see people taking vaccines and drive-thrus. Quick, quick, somebody coming up to you and jabbing you in your shoulder. Consent is not, hey, roll up your sleeve and let me stick you with this quickly and go your way. Consent is you have to be in your doctor's care. Your doctor needs to explain to you the benefits of this drug or vaccine and also the risks. But your doctor does that knowing your clinical profile. When you're sitting with your doctor in your office, he doesn't just walk up and stick you with something. The doctor knows you. The doctor knows your file. If it was contraindicated to you, the doctor will not administer that drug or vaccine to you. Here, you have people in CVS and Walmart and wherever running up to people and jabbing them in the arm. No one is explaining to them benefits versus harms. So everyone who's taking a vaccine is not properly consented they have not given the proper informed consent under all of the ethical rules that, that grew out of the syphilis Tuskegee project in the early um, uh, um, 20th century, where, you know, syphilis was deliberately uh, caused in uh, black American uh, males, etc. And um, because of that disaster and the loss of life and everything wrong that was done, to those poor people. Um, we have rules as to how this has to be done, but no one is following them. So you have everybody getting vaccines, and um, they, they don't realize they didn't just give proper informed consent, and they're not reading the paperwork that this is investigational. The, 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 the government, the vaccine developers have no liability. So if anything goes wrong, you have no recourse. So this is a catastrophic situation that we are facing. And um, I have been calling on the president to step forward now and call for no vaccines, put a pause, a moratorium on no vaccines for children. None, zero. No one under 30 should be getting a vaccine. Definitely no child like under 19 years of age because even CDC data shows that the risk of severe illness or death is statistical zero. So, again... Why would you as a parent make a risk management decision and conclude that your child is to be vaccinated? So, you know, I just said a lot. I gave you a little bit of my trials and tribulations when I went to Washington. Um, you know, I tried to serve and give help in my own way. It was very tough. And um, But if I'm asked again, I will do it again. Maybe not in the same way because the media and stuff in America is filth. I'll be as blunt as I can. I don't have another word for them. And that's about it. Wow, that is so much. But one thing I'm curious about, what was going behind the scenes, like in the presidential sphere or WHO? It sounds like from what you described, in the beginning, they were on a good track. Or they were consulting with you. Dr. Zelenko got information through about the importance of early treatment. And actually, there's so much false news on. I didn't know what was going on. But when Trump came out and supported hydroxyquinine and they censored him, the only true fact I knew is Trump was not on team censor. So that kind of uh, puts him in a 
different light, that he's standing up against something. What was really going on? Was Trump really looking into these approaches? Because I know before his election, he consulted with Robert Kennedy Jr., and he seemed to be open to all the nuances of this issue. But what really was going on in Washington and WHO? Because it seems that uh, the openness to early treatment uh, just disappeared because they're censoring these avidly. And WHO is censoring them, and Facebook and everybody is censoring them. What happened? Who took over? What's Fauci's role? Well, look, let me let me say something this way. I can't speak for President Trump, um, and, and I'll say it this way so people understand. My whole brush with the government at the, at the highest of levels was very good in the sense of I was very well treated, very well respected and stuff, and uh, from what I knew... And the times that I have been in the White House myself and people I've interacted with, um, President Trump, I, I don't know your politics, and uh, I, I'm just saying something here. President Trump is the actual, he's, 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 a, he's a good man. He's a good human being, really cared about, cares about the American people. And this is not, this is not a, a political statement. I'm just telling you a fact. Cared about improving the lives of poor people, African Americans, minorities, and I saw it in his policies. That's why it was easy for me to say, "Sure, I'm coming to D.C." When I was asked, because I liked what I was seeing, I liked the hope, I liked the renewed opportunities and the prospects of people like women, African American, Latino, everybody uh, improve job conditions and, and prospects for the future. Because that's what it is about. Remember, the the the, the health of a nation it depends on the the economic health of the nation. And unless the economy is strong, and when I say economy, unless poor people or underprivileged people are not sharing in that in that progress or, or prosperity, the nation will always be unhealthy. And, and, and you see it today. You see where the African-American and Latino populations have taken a more heavier hit and the burden from COVID because of mortality, etc., because of the risk that they bring into the um, into the equation, and and the risk that they bring is is largely a socioeconomic status risk. You know, they have poor health, poor diets, and etc. that has contributed to higher risks of um, heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, etc. That COVID exploits. COVID as a virus is not lethal. COVID is a very infectious pathogen, but it's not pathogenic. It's not lethal to you. Put it this way. If you had a population of 100 people living on an island somewhere, 100 people, average age of around 40, everybody is healthy, nobody is sick, no underlying conditions, and a very young population. If COVID found its way to the shores of that island, it might burn through some of the people there and infect, but nobody would get sick. COVID will go its way, and that will be it. The problem with COVID is it exploits risk factors, your baseline risk. So if you have none, you'll be fine. COVID has demonstrated how unhealthy the United States population is, how unhealthy the British population is, how unhealthy the Canadian population is. Depending on the health of your nation and the risk factors that your nation had, COVID exploits and does a more deadly turn. So the so the minority community, the poorer in the minority community, have suffered more because they have the type of risk factors 
that COVID exploits. So when a person like Trump came along and talked about improving life and jobs and prospects, people didn't understand. Before he even understood, COVID was not sure yet. But that philosophy is key because by improving your economic situation in life, you would reduce those risk factors. So when something like COVID had come along now or in the future, your prospect of surviving it is dramatically increased. So getting a job actually is the most protective factor. Your ability to to earn income so you could improve your life situation and make more healthier choices and stuff. You know, so look, I come from the islands and we grew up very poor. I mean, I'll see it on your show. And um, I could remember days we had no food in our home. We have five of us, five kids. And, and, and I grew up with my family and my friends and, and, and months we would just eat one meal a day of potatoes and rice. Why? Because that's the cheapest thing in a society. High starch food. Just the full. My mother knew that it would fill us up as a kid. But it was it was unhealthy food. It wasn't giving us nothing. No, no good proteins, no nothing. Just some starchy food so your stomach could have something in it, etc. That is what COVID exploits in minority and poor people. It exploits poor diets like that because that type of diet, high starch foods for all your life, too much of it, breakfast, lunch, dinner, you're going to develop diabetes. You are then going to develop renal failure and cardiovascular complications. So improving your life circumstance, your ability to earn an income and work, have money, improves your health situation. And that's where somebody like Trump, to me, is still very appealing because even though he didn't know about all of this, COVID wasn't there when he came into power, that philosophy would have helped the minority community. But to put it aside, to answer that question you asked about hydroxy and all of that, yeah, the president was open to all of that. I mean, he said it on the podium. He said it to the public. He was very open to hydroxy and any sort of safe, available, regulatory-approved therapeutic. Not any insane things that people want to throw out there and say, oh, try this, try No, no, no. The guy is not an insane person. He's a smart guy. He wanted safe therapeutics, safe things tried, and, um, and try it. Why? Why can't you try We have compassionate care. We have access. We have all of these different programs, and he signed a lot of these so that people could have urgent care and access when you normally can't, the right to try and all of that. And why shouldn't you? If I'm in a mortal situation and there's a drug that I could have access to or my family and it could save their life, it may not, but we want to try. And that's the key. And, and, and that's what also appealed to me with him. He, he wants to try everything to help, to save lives. So he was open to all of those things. And um, whilst he was open to it, you know, the task force, they had members on the task force who were against that. So, he, they, they, I mean, the, the battle played out there on the screen. And um, there were also forces in the FDA who, who um, you know, one could argue that they were going to regulatory role of, you know, we have to do things by the book. But I think his philosophy, too, was, come on, we have an emergency crisis here. We have to have some flexibility, too. So that's his I think that's his way, you know. In a way, he brought the Operation Warp Speed where he squeezed out all of the inefficiencies from the regulatory process. And what he did, 
Actually, it's remarkable. To be able to take a vaccine that would take 15 years to produce and bring it in three and a half months or so, I mean, it's really like an incredible thing. You can't really find the words to, but, but at the same time, this is where people like the Fauci's and the books and they, their role was to properly inform this guy and give him the science and give it to him, but they won't. They were fighting with him. Again, I'm not saying anything I'm making up. It's there. It was in the public. You could see. They were doing it on the stage. It was like a clunk at times some days watching what was going on between the president and his advisors. They weren't advising him properly. And... Um, I think I think that um, with the vaccines, the intention was good. The Operation Warp Suit was good to bring it, but I think I think where the mistake—I mean, I'm just giving you my view—was made. Was I mean, I have all kinds of views, particularly, you know, there's a lot of discussion over the leak of this this pathogen, where it came from, and all. That. I mean, I have bioterrorism training, so I plus I've been in a lot of discussions with people at WHO. Because I work there and I have colleagues, I have friends still at the highest levels, and they've given me their views of what they think happened um, and China's rule, etc. But the reality about it is I think where Trump got snookered is that um, he should have brought the vaccine as he did, but he should have let it take its normal course. So that maybe by the time it got to fruition, taking this normal safety assessment, because it's not just to show efficacy, you have to allow a time frame to pass so that you could assess those safety issues, safety signals that sometimes are rare. And you need a lot of cases, a lot of people to be, to be followed up before you could actually detect, you know, something is wrong here. Um, they bypass that. And I think, I don't think he understood. It's not that he didn't understand, but he's taken advisement from the top of CDC, the top of NIH, Collins, the top of this, top of that. So he's assuming that they're giving him the best thing for the American people. But they did not. They did not. When he implemented the lockdowns and the school closures, they, he followed their advice. The, the, the catastrophe from the lockdowns were because of Fauci and Burks and all of the deaths from the lockdowns because thousands of Americans, business owners and children, kill themselves because of the lockdowns. Thousands of people kill themselves because of the school closure, because of the mass mandates and all of these things. So, in a way, I'm very angry, in, in retrospect, that these people badly misinformed the president. And I knew when he was pivoting. You can see, again, the public... You could see him pivot on the podium and say, look, the hell with this task force. I'm calling on all these states to open. I'm calling on everybody to open the schools because he knew of the reports that we were getting across the United States that people were killing themselves because of the lockdowns. And there you had Fauci and Burks and they're fighting with him to keep it locked down while he's fighting to open. So I tip my hats to him for that. But I am very dismayed about the vaccines because I think that they, between the pharmaceutical industry and the money-making aspect, between the task force people who misled him, I think now is the time he actually has the opportunity today to really separate himself from the new administration and with all of the naysayers and stuff. And he needs to come forward now and say, stop, not the children. We have a lot of 
adverse events emerging because of these the, the, the vaccines given to the adults. So we're not touching the children. And put it on the record. And let other people act if they want. But he needs to say he cannot call for vaccinating children because there is no basis for it. And if something goes wrong in the future, that will be his legacy. And he doesn't. You don't want that. So I think it's a. It's the next few weeks are going to be very important because there's a lot of high-level meetings taking place with the FDA and all of that. Look, the FDA is an agency that I admire. In a way. You know, but, but there are faults and everything. And um, these people, they're so political. Um, you know, you would think it's just pure science going on there, but it's a, these are political agencies and organizations. And um, it's not just doing what is right for the best and the health of the, of the American people. So, and, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in 2022 and beyond, but look, it might sound strange. I want the present president to be successful in a way. Not because, I'm not talking about his politics that I support. It's just that you're talking about America, and you're talking about lives, and you're talking about people's jobs and all of that, and their health and their well-being and all of that. So you want the government to be successful so that the people are successful. Mind you, they're making Terrible, terrible mistakes and making terrible decisions, but I'm just telling you how I come at it. I come at it first from a good place where I want everybody to, to succeed, but I also recognize, you know, the limitations. And um, So where did all this uh, censoring going, go, come from? Censoring information on early treatment, censoring anything on hydroxychloroquine, censoring anything on vitamin C. The FDA was... Uh, convinced to not talk about vitamin D if they wanted uh, later on pharmaceutical jobs, uh, lockdowns. Where did all this come from? Was it any science or is there something else going on? Well, I mean, if you ask me, uh, clearly, everything else other than science was at play because you mean, where did it come from? I mean, most of these agencies are so political and politicized now. I mean, take instance the CDC. The CDC makes no decisions without politics. Look, right now the CDC is making every decision about opening schools, the public schools, based on its union with the teachers' union. And it's harming children and hurting children because there's no science, zero. And the CDC should be representing science, but there's no science that shows that schools should remain closed. Because school is actually the safest place for a child and a teacher, even. Median age of teachers are 41 in America. They're the lowest risk. And children don't spread it to teachers. So it's all hilarious and actually very horrible what's happening. So it seems that these agencies, these bureaucracies are entrenched in their politics and... Um, it was a hatred Politics of against who? The American people? Why are they censoring? Who, who started the censoring? But when like you say censoring, what, against the American people. When when you say censoring, what do you mean? Well, um, Facebook's taking down anything on hydroxyquinine and ivermectin early treatments. Well, look, Doctors that are doing these are getting letters from the FDA, <coughs> FDA and Justice Department threatening legal action. Their stuff is taken down. I mean, try putting. I mean, Senator Ron Johnson was uh, his stuff on hydroxyquinine was taken down. Where is this coming from? 
Well, he's a good guy, though. I, I like Ron Johnson. I think he'll be a good Potos, to be quite honest with you. So but do anyway, I. Yeah. Here's a key. Here's a key. The hatred for Trump was so thick and so real that that anything that he touched or said or alluded to, they would they would take the opposite role, even if what he said is the correct thing. And that's the most fascinating thing about this. So maybe we look back and we said, maybe he should have not advocated for mentioned early treatment or hydroxy in the past. Maybe he should have said these were bad, because if he'd have done that, then the media and everyone else would have embraced it. It's, it's just that kind of crazy, insane, irrational and illogical behavior. It's a kind of an academic sloppiness by the medical experts. You so see you're saying stages. because they hate Trump that uh, anything that he said that could help, they turn it against us and hate us, and we're punished because Trump had a good idea. Is that of it? Of course. Of course. That's what, put it this way. Put it this way. What he did in the last two years of his presidency, I would argue that, I mean, I'm a scientist, but I've followed American politics for a long time. I would argue that most presidents probably all could not, did not do collectively what he did in two years, in the last two years. Because the first two years were a failure because Paul Ryan killed him. Paul Ryan made sure he had no accomplishments. In, this is my view, my own personal view. So it was the last two years when they did not have the House that Trump really was successful and the things that he had started without well, the Well, let's of the get House. away from Trump because uh, everybody's going to have a strong opinion on that. Why are they continuing to censor? One has to follow the money, and it seems to go somewhere else other than Trump. Well, let me ask you a question. If, if you were part of a, a scheme or philosophy or activity in the past where you took certain actions that, in hindsight now, looking back at it, were wrong. In other words, we are talking about early treatment could have saved four or 500,000 lives. If we're looking at the, 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 the drop in risk of death, 85%, and we extrapolate that to the number of deaths, so potentially, potentially, you are saying that you people, whomever you are, participated in robbing people of the at least the chance to get early treatment and potentially surviving. We have the ethical responsibility to speak up if we made a mess and to correct it. But it I mean that's my approach. I would say I screwed up. Sorry. No but but Susan, they're gonna be liable. America's a country that you will have to go to court at some point. So they can't they can't turn around now and say, hey, you know, Christ these lockdowns, we killed people. People were writing and telling us we're going to kill people and we still did it. So actually we did do it. These school closures kill kids. They, they committed suicide. I'm not talking, it's written. It's the data. So if they were to say we did something wrong, we were not really well informed or we got dug into our positions and we were not, they were not looking at the science. They either yeah, but WHO was doing it and they're not involved in Trump. Every country's doing it. They're not involved in Trump. <laughs> well, I know what you're saying, but that, now, you, now you're opening the conversation to a very large conversation because, because, because people, people like myself look at the situation, it's not just forces in the United States 
This goes beyond the United States border. Yeah, well, that that's what I wanted to get to, because talking about politics is poison. I mean, that's a conversation that's no point in having. But why in the whole world are they doing this? And unfortunately, we only have three minutes left. But, you know, I mean, it's it's more than Trump. It is more than Trump, of course. So what it is, is more, it? It's a, it's a hatred of America. I mean, how, how else can I say it? America is the last beacon of hope. America is the standout country in this entire world. I'll say it. And they have countries and they have leaders and they have people who hate America just for hating America because of its position, because of its people, because of the idea of America, because of the so freedom. So you're saying that whatever this, am I, I'm interrupting because we've got so little time left. So uh, who, who, whatever's going on in the world, America is an important player because we're the last bastion of independent uh, people that stand up to stuff. But of what's course. the bigger picture? So, yeah, it looks like our country's uh, somebody, and we're doing it within, destroying ourselves. But what's the bigger picture? You mean in terms of the future? No, what, what, why is this going on in every country? Why is, of the, all of, why is WHO supporting this? That's bigger than Trump. Well, I mean, WHO, I mean, you have to read and be on top of all of the issues around globalization versus um, um, uh, uh, uh a nationalist sort of mindset where you recognize that your nation is your nation and for a nation to be a nation, it must have borders, it must have its language, etc. They have people in this world who don't look at America that way or look at their own countries that way and they, they, they think that your country is their country and they don't realize, no, it's not. And they think that if I turn up at your border, you must just let me in and they don't realize you, you, you can't do that, you mustn't do that. That's insane. So so that's a problem. And uh, they're angry. They're angry that along comes Trump. I mean, you say don't mention him as much, but I'm saying along comes Trump who said, no, can't work like that. So he's hated even more and he's marked for destruction because he is saying what they don't want. Okay, so I'm interrupting again. But so what I hear, which is what I suspected, is there's some big worldwide agenda going on. Maybe it's globalization, maybe it's reset, maybe yeah. it's agenda twenty twenty one. And Trump I see was getting in the way. He was getting in the way and that's why so much hate was focused on that's my opinion. I'm just a yes, person. I, I, uh, I but that. that's what I see going on. So there's something bigger going on. Anyway, we only have like a minute and a half left, so would you like to Say any final points, uh, anything to our audience? Well, I mean, look, first of all, like how I started, I appreciated the opportunity to, to, to come talk with you. And um, it's, it's, it's a privilege and an honor. Look, the reality is that America survived the 1960s with all of the crazy things that happened. And America will survive this era and period. The COVID pandemic, we have a lot of questions right now. It's not just the response that was such a catastrophic failure, still is. And it's not just the vaccines, but now there's a pivot now to try to understand how did this happen and who did what and when. That's a very important issue because it raises a lot, a lot of questions and it, it probably would open up the doors to how wide this was. And it was just China. Did this just only happen there in China? Was this really a localized issue, an accident that happened? So there are a lot of things we need to find out because at the end of the day, 
if things were done wrong deliberately against America, if nefarious actions were taken, we need to understand that because people have to be held accountable. It's that simple. And I think they were afraid of President Trump because he would. So I'm hoping that the next leaders, whoever they are, is coming, and I hope we have those in our children, because there are a lot of good young people out there who are going to serve in the future. I hope we have a good set coming that's going to fix this world and make sure that all these questions are answered, because something wrong took place here, very, very wrong. And, uh, yeah, that's it. Okay, well, I would like to thank you, because what I see in this whole thing, it's a bigger picture than American politics, uh, but it was, medicine was politicized. And since when did medicine come out of the hands of those doctors that are in the front Correct. lines? When did that happen? And this is going on in every country. There's censorship everywhere and worse things in other countries. So there's something bigger afoot that can be rather ugly. So anyway, yes. I advise the reader to do your own research. I think it's very important, and as I've always said in the times of COVID, that we build up our immunity and you know be healthy, and that's our best defense. So we've given you a lot of information how to do this on our other shows. So do your own research. Consult with your physician and clinician. And above all, be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.